The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. The word of God speaks to us like this. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in the long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the very word of God to us. Hey, my name is Bryce Johnson. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I would love the opportunity to do so. Um, I am a pastoral resident here at Frontline Church. My wife, daughter, and I moved here a little over a year ago, um, and uh, it has been a joy to embed our lives here uh, and to do life with you guys. It's been a sweet, sweet thing. Um, If you do have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be just walking right through the passage. Uh, We've been walking through the gospel of Mark, and we have been seeing um, Jesus who has been declaring this kingdom, and he's just turning everyone uh, on their heads because they're not who they expect him to be. And the last few weeks, we've we've looked at the scene where Jesus is in the temple, he's in Jerusalem, and all these religious leaders come up to him, and they just start peppering him with questions. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and and they're trying to trip him up. They're trying to twist his words. Uh, They're they're trying to uh, confuse him. Um, And they've come to a point where they've essentially given up on the questions because Jesus just answers them, well, here's a pro tip. Uh, if you're going to question God, uh, you better have some really good questions. Um, better yet, just, just, just don't. Um, but last week, what we saw was the scribe comes up to Jesus, and he says, hey, Jesus, what's, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers him. He says, well, the greatest commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the scribe says, you're right. You know what? You're right. That's actually more important than all the offerings and burnt sacrifices there are. And Jesus says something so interesting. He says, you're not far from the kingdom. Uh, and, and it feels like a diss, but what Jesus is just saying is like, hey, you, you're partly there. You're partly there, but you've missed me. You've missed me, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is, Jesus, this text says that Jesus answers them so well that they're silent, that no one asks another question because they don't know what to ask. And so now Jesus turns around and asks them a question, 
And if you spend enough time in the Bible, you see that as many questions as you bring to the Bible and as many questions as you bring to Jesus, uh, all these things, at some point, he will ask questions of you. At some point, he will ask you to answer this point of question. And it's not to trip you up. It's not to confuse you. It's not to uh, trap you or stump you. But but to get you to wrestle with the reality of who he is. And Jesus asks them a question. Jesus asks the, the scribes specifically a question that's going to reveal that they actually don't know who he is. They don't really know who he is. Uh, s- several years ago, I was at a worship conference and I saw someone uh, from across the room. And so I went up to them and just was you know, started making conversation, asking him you know, just about his church and his ministry and his family and life. And, and we, we had a great conversation for a few minutes and I was just peppering him with question after question after question. And after about four or five minutes, he stops and he says, um, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, who are you? And in that one moment, I realized I'm not talking who I thought I was talking to, uh, right? I mean, this is, this is Austin, worship leaders, skinny jeans, you know, deep v-necks, they all look the same after a while. But with that one question, I, re- I saw, like, I am not talking who I thought I was talking to. And what Jesus is going to, with this one question, Jesus is going to reveal the same thing to these scribes, that they actually don't know who he is. And so they don't obey what they know. And here's why this is important for us. Because ultimately what Jesus is going to do in this passage through these three different pictures is unpack their own hypocrisy. That They know these things, but they don't actually live it out. And I think it's vitally important for us because for many, if not most of us, if not all of us, we've walked through moments, if not seasons, of, of feeling like a hypocrite of being like, man, I, I know this truth, but I don't actually live it out. And some of us have been hurt by it. Some of us uh, have walked through it, but some of us have been hurt by the hypocrisy of others. And I think what's really scary is that some of us might not even know that we're walking in hypocrisy, which is, I think, part of where the scribes are this morning. And so Jesus is going to shine a light on that this morning. And what we're ultimately going to see is that who we think Jesus is will determine how we view ourselves and how we view others. And so this text this morning is going to have us answer or ask these three questions. These three questions are, how do we view Jesus? How do we view ourselves and how do we view others? How do we view Jesus? How do we view ourselves and how do we view others? So if you have a copy of the scriptures, Mark chapter 12, verse 35 And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And so first off, let me paint the picture here for you. Jesus was addressing this understanding that the religious leaders of the day, they had. And they had this knowledge, this prophecy that the Christ or the Messiah or maybe more easier, the Savior was going to be a descendant of David. And David was widely considered the greatest king uh, that Israel had had. And in Scripture, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his uh, throne would last forever. And so, you, so you have this, this hope, this prophecy all through the prophets and even to the New Testament that, hey, the Savior is coming, 
and the Savior is going to be a descendant of David. But there's so much wrapped into this expectation. It's not like they were just looking at every, uh, you know, they kept this great family tree. They were just looking at every baby, wondering if they were the Savior. They had all these expectations. They were expecting someone from the line of David who's going to do the sort of things that David did. David defeated Israel's enemies. Do you all remember the story of David and Goliath? David defeated Israel's enemies. David united Judea uh, and, and all of Israel under his rule. He, he, he was a unifying king. And G, David established Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and as the center of worship. And by the way, it's in Jerusalem at the temple that Jesus asks this question about the Messiah being like David. And there's all this hope, all this expectation for a leader like that again. This, this geopolitical Messiah who's going to kick out Rome and restore and reestablish Israel, make Israel great again. And so when Jesus shows up, he's different from what they're expecting. He's different from what they're hoping for. So with that in mind, let's look at, again at Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng or crowd heard him gladly. So Jesus quotes Psalm 10, which is actually the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Um, it's this prophetic hope about this Messiah who, who's this conquering king. But Jesus points out something that's sort of confusing. Jesus says, hey, the scribes tell us that the Messiah is supposed to be David's son, right? Well, then, if that's so, why does David call the Messiah his Lord? And what he's drawing attention to is that parents don't call their kids Lord, I have a daughter, and she is super precious to me, and these days she acts like she runs the house, but I will never call her Lord, right? She is uh, great. I'm sure she would love it. I'm sure she would want me to call her Lord, but she is Dada's baby girl, not Dada's Lord. So Jesus is saying, hey, if the Messiah is supposed to be David's son, why does, why does he call him Lord? And what he's doing is he's challenging the people, he's challenging the scribes to wrestle with this truth that they know. They know this truth, but they've never actually wrestled with it. They've never sat with it. And with this truth, the religious leaders were looking for this political and, and social revolutionary, and over and over and over again, we see that Jesus is different from who they're expecting. What we're seeing here is it's not just that he's different. He's actually greater than what they're expecting. And so this is the question for us this morning, Frontline. This is the question, who is Jesus? Or maybe better yet, what kind of Savior is Jesus? See, if, if the Christ is David's son, but David calls him Lord, then the Christ must be greater than David. Now, Jesus leaves it open-ended here, but Mark tells us, in case we had any doubt, the very first verse of the very first chapter, he says, hey, Jesus is actually God's son. And so he's human, but he's also God. And he calms the storm, and he heals 
diseases and he fixes what's broken and he will defeat all of Israel's enemies. But they're the greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And, and, and I was, as I was sitting this week, what, what hit me was the, the scribes, they, they had this, this right theological data points, but they never wrestled with it. They never let it sink into their hearts. Who is Jesus, friends? And what kind of savior is he? Now, this is not just like some sort of rhetorical question. Like, like actually think. Like, what sort of savior is Jesus? If, if, if you were to look down deep into your heart, past the Sunday school answers, past what you know you're supposed to say, past even the Bible verses that you know, functionally, who is Jesus in your life? Is he, is he the Savior that you pay lip service to and sing to on a Sunday morning and maybe give part of your heart or part of your life, but not this one part? Is he, is, is he the sort of person that, you know, we like nod at and acknowledge, but then walk past? Not having our lives changed, shifted, radically changed because of him? Is he ultimately a political pawn to bolster your point? Which, by the way, both sides of the political aisle do. Is, is he a demanding taskmaster who stands over you in judgment when you mess up? Friends, who is this Jesus? Really? Let me offer you what Scripture offers. That he's David's son, meaning he knows what it's like to walk in suffering. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. The book of Hebrews tells us that he's this empathetic high priest who can empathize with us in every way. He became flesh and blood and walked and dwelt among us and bled among us, and he's God's son, meaning that he can actually do something about what's broken. He can actually restore this relationship that was broken. He can actually defeat Satan's sin and death. And he has successfully done that in his death and resurrection. And he, now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And by the way, he's coming back again to finish what he started. He's both. He's not just one or the other. And I think the temptation sometimes for us is to really drift towards one or the other, right? right? Like he's either really this strong, powerful military warrior that we project our hopes on in the here and now? Or he's God up above who really doesn't have much to say or do about our lives. He, he, he cares about my spirit, but not about what, what I do. He's both. He's both. He's, God's, he's David's son and he's God's son. And here's why that's critically important. Here's why we must settle that this morning. It's because how we view Jesus will ultimately determine how we view ourselves which is the next point. Look at uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, meaning Jesus' teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater judgment. Now, these scribes were walking around with a sense of self-importance. They, they had these robes that, that drew attention to their status and to their own importance. They wanted to be formally recognized um, at parties and at events in, in public. 
they, they wanted the best seats in the synagogue, which feels funny to me because right now I think most of us want to sit as far away from uh, the, the front of, as possible at church, right? But they wanted the best seats. These scribes had these long prayers. In another place, Jesus accuses them of just using empty words, vain words that they repeat over and over. And they wanted people to know who they were and to recognize their status. And, and maybe for some of us, you know people like this, right? Like you know those who are seeking very publicly to draw attention to themselves. Jesus says something super interesting. He says they're not going to get away with it. Not like, hey, that, that's not cool, that's not okay. He says they're not going to get away with it. In fact, there's greater condemnation coming towards them. It's so heinous that he pronounces judgment. Now, I doubt many of us read this and say, oh, man, yeah, that, that's me. That's me. I am trying to draw attention with all that I do and all that I say. Please, please throw adulation at me. There might be some of you in this room, I, I don't know, maybe you really do know people like that. But I, 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 think, I, I think that misses the heart of it. Because aren't all of us concerned with what people think of us? Really. For all of us, there are ways that we want to be perceived, and ways we want to be viewed, and ways that we definitely don't want to be viewed, Right? And we work hard. We work really hard to bolster that image, to make sure that that's in place. We want people to think of us a certain way. And so we clothe ourselves with niceness and good deeds, and we want to project the certain image of who we are. For some of us, we wear our political and social beliefs on our sleeves, and, and we identify ourselves primarily through those markers. At the end of the day, we, we live in a time where maybe more than ever you're critically judged by what you say and do. And so we, we, we have these social righteousness cues. And we get caught up in it ourselves. We want people to view us in a certain way. I read this story this week. In 2020, right after the pandemic hit, a lot of small restaurants were hit pretty hard because people weren't going out to eat. Um, and so... Domino's, the pizza restaurant, decided, hey, we're going to do something about this. And so they went out and they bought gift cards from a bunch of stores, uh, a bunch of restaurants around their stores. They bought $100,000 worth of gift cards. And they did it as a way to, to help these restaurants. They said, hey, we're all in this together. And so they bought them, they gave them to the restaurants, and so the restaurants had business. They were able to give their gift cards and, and garner some more business. Felt really cool, and Domino's was like, hey, you know what? We should put the word out of, of, of what we did. And so they did. They, they made a commercial, uh, which, which is not um, super shocking, right, when, when corporations do something good and they want to show off. But what came out was that in order to promote that they had bought $100,000 worth of gift cards to help restaurants, Domino's had spent $50.5 million dollars in advertising to get the word out. That's 50.5 million dollars. Now, if you, if you work at Domino's here, or if you really love their pizza, listen, I'm not judging you, I'm judging your CEO and your advertising team. <laughs> but stories like this make us feel a little gross, don't they? And, and, and we shake our heads and we're like, ah, oh, they're terrible. 
because it reveals that ultimately what the companies care about are themselves, right? They're, they're in it for the bottom dollar. They're in it so that you, you might look at them better and say, man, what a great restaurant. I would love to eat, eat pizza from there. But it's not just true of Domino's. It's true of all of us. We do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing. Jesus, now, hear me. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't show honor, right? He's not saying that. He's, he's not saying we shouldn't show good. But what he's condemning is the love of self that seeks out that honor. The love of self that says, hey, hey, look at me more. More than anything, what Jesus is pointing out is our tendency to be self-centered. As we seek to not only just elevate ourselves, right? We, we don't just want to elevate ourselves. We only think about ourselves. We, we worry about how people perceive us. And so we spend so much time and energy crafting and curating a certain image or brand on social media, don't we? I'm like, hey, this is what we're about. Or, or, or this is what my life is like. Or, or we get so bent out of shape or agitated or worried when people don't recognize the good that we do or how we serve others. And, and then bitterness builds up in us. I think for some of us in our C groups and D groups, we don't confess sin to one another because we're worried about, about what other people will think and, and whether they'll judge us or be disappointed in us. Now, here's the question for us. Why? Why do we do this? Why are we so self-absorbed in ourselves? Well, isn't it because we forget who we are in Jesus or disbelieve who we are in Jesus? Don't we spend so much time thinking about ourselves because we spend less time thinking about who Jesus is? We forget that because of Jesus, the God of the universe looks at us in pleasure and we have all the approval that we need. We, we, we don't believe Jesus, so we don't confess sin, and we disbelieve the truth that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we're, we're only thinking about ourselves because we're not thinking about Jesus, because we've never lifted our eyes up. But, and this is why what we think about Jesus is tied into how we view ourselves. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Paul, Paul's exhorting the church, and he gives Jesus an example. He says, hey, be like Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, by the way, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, so I don't know if you caught that. He said, hey, we're to emulate the same mind that Jesus had, where he wasn't trying to flex his own power, which he had. He, he wasn't trying to exert his own authority, which, by the way, he had. But he, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And for all of us, I, I don't know if there's anything that feels more countercultural right now than to empty yourself and to take the form of a servant. But more than that, he, go, he, he continues in verse 9. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus emptied himself, because he took the form of a servant, now he is the name that is above every other name. Meaning it's above your name and it's above my name and I hope this is as good news to you as it is to me. Because here's what Paul tells us over a thousand years before Copernicus told us, you're not the center of the universe. I hope that's good news to you. Friends, Jesus is inviting us to take our, our eyes off ourselves and to look to him. T Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, and he says, he says this beautiful thing. I don't know if it's original or not, but he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You want to walk in true humility. It's not, it's not just thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible person. It's to actually take your mind and your eyes off yourself. And the invitation of the scripture is to put them on Jesus. And so Jesus invites us to analyze who he is, to look at ourselves, and finally Jesus invites us to consider how we view others. Now, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but while Jesus was uh, denouncing the scribes, he calls out something that they do. He says that they devour widows' houses. Now, there's been a lot of debate, a lot of speculation over what that means, um, but I, I think it's, Jesus is about to make it clear right in the next few verses what he means. So if you have a copy of the text, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he, being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And so what Jesus just observed, he, he sits down and he watches people putting offering in, in an offering box, which maybe feels uh, really stressful to you, um, that Jesus might be watching what you're putting in. By the way, that's not the point of this text. But Jesus says, hey, all these rich people put in money, but they're, they're putting in out of their margin, out of what's extra. But this poor widow She's putting in everything that she has. In the original language, it says she, she's, she's put in her very life in this offering box. And if you're like me, you've heard this passage preached before, and, and typically it's preached in a couple different ways. One, it's preached in a way where we're saying, hey, we should give generously just like this widow did. We should give all that we have. We should give everything like we have like this widow and just trust the Lord. Or we preach in a way where we say, hey, listen, God doesn't care about what you give, right? Whether you give a lot, whether you give a little, what he cares about ultimately is your heart. And, and those are true, true truths that are biblical and valuable and right. It's just not what we're seeing here in this text. And we know that because of the context of what's going on. Jesus, Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. In a few verses, he's going to rebuke uh, the temple system. Jesus... Um, uh, rebukes the scribes for devouring widows' houses. And in fact, that, that phrase where, where it says Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, the author Mark uses that one other time in all of Mark, and it's in a few verses, where Jesus sits opposite the temple as he pronounces judgment on the temple. What Jesus is doing is he's pronouncing judgment on this corrupt system that instead of blessing 
the vulnerable, they're exploiting the weak and those who are uh, vulnerable in the community. If you're a woman living in this time, your, your economic welfare was tied to marriage. And so if your husband died, then so did your primary source of income. And so many widows usually slipped into poverty and destitution and hard times because of their vulnerability. And so this is why the author of James tells us that part of true religion is to remember orphans and widows in their plight. Over and over and over again, the, uh, God commands in the scripture for his people to care for those who are most vulnerable. But instead of blessing and helping this widow, the system had become so corrupt that they were demanding more from her. And listen, we, we ought to give sacrificially like this widow. We ought to give in such a way where it's not just skimming off the top, not just, just margin. And it's true that God cares more about our heart than about the amount that we give. And there's so much to commend about living in such a way where we ultimately rely and trust in the Lord. But what Jesus is drawing our attention to here is the way in which we use and exploit people. And when we use and exploit people primarily for our own benefit. Listen, if anyone knew the commands of Scripture, it were the scribes, whose literal job was to copy the text of Scripture onto blank scrolls. They knew it in themselves. This is why they were called experts of the law. They knew the Scriptures, but instead of practicing it, they found ways around it. They found ways to use it where it would benefit them. And what this meant often was that they would use people. Frontline Church here's a question for us this morning. How do we view people? And not just like, hey, how do you view the person sitting next to you or how do you generally feel about people? But are we cognizant and aware of the ways in which our actions impact other people? Are we aware of the ways in which uh, we are prone to hurt or devour or destroy others? I mean, we easily see this on social media, don't we? We live in a time, an age where it's so easy to eviscerate someone that you disagree with on Twitter or Facebook. But we also do it in the ways in which we use people for what they can give us, right? We, we, I, prior to being here, I was a pastoral uh, assistant at, uh, at a church. My boss was a fairly well-known pastor in some circles. Um, And so what I found were there were a lot of people that would buddy up to me, and they befriended me, and which was great. What I realized was they were actually trying to get to my boss. Uh, And so when they got what they want or they didn't get what they want, um, then just didn't hear from them again. And I realized this this ugly, sticky situation where they 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 weren't really interested in me. They were just using me for what they could get. And that's, don't we do that with people all the time? Don't we befriend people or, or reach out to people primarily for what they can give us? And we also do this when we forget the image of God and the dignity of man because we're so concerned about ourselves. And we might see this, um, this is partly why, part of the reason why pornography is so damaging there's, there's the sin aspect of it, right? And the, the lust and adultery in there. But part of the reason why it's so damaging is because we have this sense of entitlement to our own pleasure and our own desires that we turn to this image that 
at the end of the day, diminishes people to their attractiveness and their sexual availability. It serves only to, to serve our sexual appetite so that the person on the screen, the image on the screen is, is not a man or a woman created the image of God. They're a commodity that we use, right? And whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, every click, every view furthers the sex trade industry. We're so concerned about our own desires and wants that we don't see, or maybe worse, we won't see the ways in which we can use and abuse others. And we don't want to see how our actions can impact others. Listen, this this whole passage reads as an indictment on how we don't actually obey the great commandment that we, we looked at last week. Rather than loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we love ourselves with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Rather than loving our neighbor as ourselves, we use our, and abuse our neighbors for ourselves. Jesus shines a light on our hypocrisy and our idolatry of ourselves, and he says, listen, if you want to know if you know me rightly, look at how you view yourself. Look at how you view your relationships. Look at how you treat others. And this week, as I sat with this text, it was just, just looked at, this text just unraveled all these areas of my life in which I fail at this. How I interact with others on, online, to, to how I treat the waitstaff at restaurants. I mean, often what I, what I saw, I did not like. And so here's the question for us this morning. What do we do? What's the solution? What's the solution to our hypocrisy? Well, it can't be to try harder. Do better. That, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were trying. They were trying really hard to do it without Jesus. But the answer is actually to go back to that first question and answer that first question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The answer to our hypocrisy, to our sin, is to not keep looking at ourselves It's not to look externally, it's to look at Jesus, this conquering king. And look at who he is. He's he's the king who who serves and loves others, right? He he washed the disciples' feet, he healed diseases, but he also met people in such unique ways. To those who had these skin diseases that that forbade them from being touched, he, he offered physical touch. He, he stopped to address a woman who touched the hem of his garment, and she was already healed, and he still stopped to address her. He, he, think about the woman at the well that, where, where, where Jesus doesn't approach her with just harshness and truth. He, he approaches her, her hesitancy and her suspicion with gentleness. It's, it's one of the biggest rubs in all of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is not the kind of Savior we want or think we want. Because... So often, we don't even know what we want. But like that cheesy phrase, he's the Savior that we need. And, and he, he displays his power and his might by laying down his life. Th- this poor widow in this text, she gave all that she had to the offering box, to this corrupt religious system. And yet, in Jesus, we see a Savior who is God, who left the riches of heaven and willingly stepped into poverty and not just that, he, he allowed himself to be used and abused by this corrupt system. 
he didn't just he didn't just give the last of his finances. He gave his very life. He gave it for others. He gave it for us. <laughs> he, he gave it for us so that him, God's son, so that our his father would become our father. The, there's an early church father named Athanasius. He says that one of the reasons why Jesus died on a cross was so that his arms would be outstretched as a symbol of him welcoming all who would come to him. Listen, for those of us who rest, who sit here and recognize our own hypocrisy, our own failings, Jesus doesn't look at us with judgment. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, come on, man, clean your act up. The way Jesus responds is by dying for us, by moving towards us, by loving us, by serving us. He doesn't come in condemnation. He comes with an offer, and the offer is to, listen, it's a gentle offer to take your eyes off yourself and place your eyes on Jesus. He says, take your eyes off yourself and look to me. Look to my cross. Look to the resurrection. Look at me at the right hand of the Father, and as you see more of what Jesus has done for you, let his life become yours. Let's pray.